0: When, I may have mentioned it before but when Katie and I were in the hospital with Hudson um, we would go out into the, this little family area for uh, our meals and we always flip the channel to HGTV if you don't know what HGTV is it's like where all the like house fixer-upper shows are located so you watch all these people either buy houses or, or, or whatever they're doing but like decorating or fixing houses um, we always would hope that Chip and Joanna Gaines were on Uh, on fixer-upper, if you don't know what those are, that's okay. Um, But uh, the one day we were in there, this show called Flip or Flop Las Vegas was on. And the couple would buy these houses and they would try to get them at kind of a cheap cost and then fix them up um, and then sell them um, at, at a profit. And in this particular episode, they're looking over this house that it didn't seem like it needed much work. Things were looking pretty good on the outside. Well, the inside's looking pretty good. Maybe this place just kind of needs a fresh coat of paint. And so they're thinking, this is great. We bought it at this low price. It's not going to cost very much money. We're going to make a greater profit. But then as the husband, who kind of does a lot of the, like, checking around and, like, demolition work, he's like, ooh, this kind of, like, smells like urine in here. And then he discovers, oh, the previous owners must have had dogs that were, like, peeing in the house. Like, okay, that's not too bad. Um, But then he discovered... Um, The dogs were like all, were peeing on the walls all the time, and then the inside of the walls were soaked with urine, and the urine, the moisture of the urine, it started to create mold in the walls, and so he, calls his wife and is like, I've got bad news, (laughs) this is way bigger of a project um, than we thought it was going to be. It's not going to, it's going to take more than just this, you know, coat of paint, a fresh coat of paint, it's going to be like, we're going to have to gut this house and get this urine and this mold out of these walls. When they first walked in, they're like, fresh coat of paint, this will be ready to sell, then they discovered their issues were not just on the surface, not just surface level issues. They go deeper and they're going to have to do a lot more work um, to fix the house up. And as we continue be- in beginning the journey home uh, in the book of Genesis, we're in the middle of this section that's impressing upon us how bad sin is. Like this is horrible. What humans have done and our disobedience against God, against God is, is a horrible thing. Um, and it's showing us that the consequences of choosing God's, or our own way over God's way are Disastrous. That's what the whole, um, this part is impressing upon us. And today we're covering the famous story in scripture, story of Noah and the flood, that we have started reading. In chapter 6, verse 9, we once again see this title, These are the generations of blank. We've heard the the, the generations of heaven and earth, the generations of Adam, and now we're at the generations of Noah. And it's basically saying this is the story of whatever it is. This is a story of how every thing got the way it is with heaven and earth this is a story of what happened to adam and his family and now we're focusing in noah is one of adam's descendants we're focusing in. this is what the story of noah and what happens with his family and during noah's lifetime god looked at his creation and he sees how corrupt humanity had become he sees their wicked deeds and he sees that these wicked deeds um flow out of evil hearts it's not just that they have this behavior problem on the outside it's that there's something broken with them on the inside in other words the problem isn't only on the outside. Um, it goes deeper. And like the house on flip or flop, it's going to require more than just this fresh coat of paint to fix things. There's going to need to be some sort of internal change, some sort of deep internal change. And the problem, it's in the walls. It's in the structure of the house. The problem is deeper than just the surface behaviors. And so God determines to do what he said he would do way back in Genesis 2 when everything was good. He said if humans choose to disobey, if humans choose to do go their own way, instead of my way, he says, they're going to surely die. And then generation upon generation, uh, thousands of years of patience, um, God you know, said this is going to happen. He just shows all this merciful patience. Now he's coming and saying, I'm going to be true to my word. I'm going to be faithful to what I've said. Um, this is going to happen now. Every promise that the serpent made to them back in Genesis 3 has been empty. Um, none of what he promised has come to full fruition, but God is going to be true to his word. He said, you're going to surely die if you do this, and now it's happening. And the big question this passage answers is, how do we escape ruin and experience renewal? How do we escape ruin and experience renewal? How do we escape ruin and experience renewal? And we learn this The answer to this question as we look um, at Noah's life. How does he escape ruin and experience renewal? How does he escape this flood and how does he go into this new world? And we were introduced to Noah last week um, when God, he looks out and he sees the wicked deeds and the evil hearts of humanity and God's filled with anguish and anger. He's grieved and he decides, I'm going to blot out humanity from the face of the earth. But it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And then we (coughs) learn in chapter 6, verse 9, why? Why does Noah have favor in the eyes of God? It says, um, chapter 1 uh, or chapter I'm sorry chapter 6 verse 9 says this these are the generations of noah noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation noah walked with god and noah had three sons shem ham and japheth so in comparison to others living at his at this time noah is righteous and blameless and he walks with god and righteous means he treats others right, rightly if you're a righteous person you're treating other people in a right way. And then blameless means he treats others rightly in all he does. It's not just like, okay, certain parts of his life he treats others rightly. Like, oh, he treats these, the rich people rightly, but he doesn't treat the poor people rightly. Or like, oh, he only treats people rightly during this time of the day, but when he gets home, he treats his family um, not right. Um, it's mean, he's blameless. It's like, man, you can't bring any charge against this guy. He's always treating people rightly. And this doesn't mean Noah is perfect and never does anything wrong or never sins. But it does mean that when he does something wrong, he makes it right. Um, You know, you can treat people rightly by, hey, I hurt you, I'm sorry. That's treating people rightly when you've made a mistake, and you you learn that in in God's law, that there's provisions made um, for expressing forgiveness, asking forgiveness from God, asking forgiveness from other people. And so you treat others rightly um, in all you do by making things right when you don't uh, treat them rightly. But Noah doesn't only treat others rightly. He also walks with God, it says. He, he has this right relationship with God and he has a right relationship with other people. And you could say um, that he follows what Jesus calls the two greatest commands. He loves God and he loves other people. As Jesus says, this is how you sum up the Old Testament. Love God, love other people. And when God looks out at this world, he sees a world of people who don't love him and don't love each other. They, they love themselves. They've just become wicked and with evil hearts. And, but in contrast, Noah is loving God. Noah is loving other people. And because of that, God chooses Noah um, to be used by him. For us today, we can be encouraged that when we're walking with God, when we're seeking to love him and seeking to love others, not perfectly, but doing what's right. When you know, we mess up, we ask for forgiveness from God, we ask for forgiveness from other people, that God um, can use us just like he used Noah. And he uses Noah in this mighty way. And God can use us in a mighty way when we're walking with him And seeking to love him and love others. Then verses 11 through 13 remind us of God's assessment that we heard last week. Chapter 6, verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth." And then he goes on and gives instructions for making the ark. But um, God orid- originally wanted humans to be to fill the earth as his representatives and to fill the earth with his goodness. He's a good king, and so if they're going to be representatives of him, they're going to represent his goodness. But now God sees the earth, and what does he see it filled with? Violence. He, sees, he doesn't see it filled with his representatives representing his good reign and rule. He sees it filled with violence. And the word violence here... Um, it's one of those, like, really packed words in the original language that's hard to capture, like, in a short phrase or in one word. Um, and it, it translates a word that is pe- talking about total disregard for the rights and dignity of other humans. And so it's like you, God looks and he sees that humans, they're not loving each other. They're just having this total disregard for the rights and the dignity of other people. And often when you disregard someone's rights and dignity, it leads to violence. That's why it gets translated that way because it's like if you don't care about somebody's dignity, well, you can just harm them and, you know, do whatever you want to them. You can abuse them and or beat them or, you know, put them in horrible situations. Like that's violent ways of interacting with people. It's not respecting their their rights or their dignity. Um, but we may look at this and be like, "Well, oh, violence, you know, that's pretty harsh. Like we don't really do that today." Um, but if you just you know, take a look at our world. We can see all kinds of ways that this is still um, the case. That if God looks out at our world, He sees all kinds of ways that we're violating other people's dignity and rights. And um, we maybe it's easy to say to look to ignore somebody. Um, I was just reading the Book of James this week, and I was like, wow, this really connects with this because James is like, don't ignore poor people in favor of rich people, um, because that's not loving other people. And so we can easily do that. We can treat people. Who, have, who are like, you know, well dressed and have you know means and, and wealth. We can treat them differently than we treat someone on the on the street. We give somebody who's rich our attention and say like, oh, this is somebody worthy of my time, worthy um, of paying attention to me. I want them to notice me. And then somebody who's poor on the street and homeless, we can just be like, I'm not even gonna make eye contact because I don't want to feel uncomfortable or bad or like, oh, you know, they got themselves in that situation and so they can figure get their get themselves out of it like I've worked hard for what I've got and they can work hard and get out of that like that's a way to just push somebody down and not think about their dignity and their rights and when God sees his world he sees a bunch of people who don't love others like they want to be loved that assessment um, we can see it everywhere today because if we look at the history of our country um, as well we see um, you know 250 years ago people were enslaved in our country and 40 years ago, we had a, 50 years ago, we had a civil rights movement for equality of blacks and whites. And now today we see that racism is still alive and well as we have all these movements trying to say, like, we need to have um, equality even though maybe there isn't racism in our laws. Like, it's still something that's in our water. And so we see that there's this issue we still have. And we still struggle as individuals and as a society to treat the poor, the refugee, former inmates, the homeless, and the orphan, in the same way that we would want to be treated if we are in those same situations. Like, would you want somebody to just walk by you if you're sitting on the street? Or if you are an orphan, would you want to just be put off in the government system, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind? And it's like all these ways that we don't treat others as we would want to be treated, and we ignore other people's dignity and rights. And so it's not like this is a problem that's gone away, um, which gives a great... Uh, um, the fact that we, will get into this next week, the fact that we are still allowed to be in God's earth, even though that situation hasn't really changed, is just a huge testament to his grace. And the word corrupt is used several times in these verses we just read. The earth is corrupt in God's sight. Everyone has corrupted their own way on earth. And so God determines to corrupt or destroy the earth. That's what our translation says. In other words, all those could be translated as ruined. Humanity has ruined the earth. They've ruined their way, and now God is going to ruin them and all the earth with it. And in many ways, God is really ruining something that's already been ruined. It's not like, oh, here's this perfectly good creation and all these awesome humans hanging out, and he's just like, eh, you know, so just wipe this out. It's already been ruined, and God is uh, sealing the deal. And the way he's going to do it, we read, is a flood. And we need to remember, um, when we read about this big flood that... Drowns the population of humanity. It's not God just flying off the handle with all this pent up rage. You know, like, oh, I just hit my breaking point. Like, it just boils over. Because we read last week that when God sees what humans have done and what they've become, um, he's grieved, he's filled with anguish. And also anger. It's like, man, what? Um, we learned that the, um, the same word is used um, in other passages uh, to describe the feeling of when a father hears that his son's been killed or the feeling that some brothers have when they hear that their uh, sister has been raped. Like That's the feeling that God is having. There's this anger and there's this anguish of like, what has happened in this world? What have humans done to it? And we also need to remember that God told them this is going to happen. He told Adam and Eve, If you rebel against me, you will surely die. And God separates them from his presence, which is spiritual death. And people are dying off naturally, as we saw last week. But now, after thousands of years of God's gracious patience, he's taking action in fulfillment of his word that he told them. I said you would die if you did this. And you did it, and I've been patient, and now you know, the time has come. He told them that it would happen, and they did it anyway. And interestingly, other groups from this time period have stories of a giant flood. There's many cultures that have the story of, like, does God send a flood? Um, and there's some guy that survived, and that's where the rest of humanity comes from. Um, and this makes sense, because if everybody on the earth died, and it's just Noah and his three sons and their wives, um, and from them comes all the other families, like... Don't you think they would tell that story, like your your, uh, great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, like, oh yeah, he survived the flood, and that story just gets passed down as the cultures and the people spread across the world. They have um, these stories of this great flood that happened way back when. But there's important differences between the Bible's account of the flood and the stories from these other groups. And there's three um, that I like to point out. First, God's reason is different. God's reason is different. In the other accounts, the gods send the flood to deal with an overpopulated earth. Uh, Humans, they're breeding too fast, and I'm not joking about this, they're making too much noise, and so the gods send this flood to take care of this problem. Oh, there's too many of them, they're making too much racket down there, like, let's get rid of them. And so they send this flood to wipe them out. In the Bible, God sends the flood as a judgment against humanity's sin. It's not about population control. The reason is justice, not annoyance, like, uh, you know, quiet this down. And second, um, God's control is different. So God's reason is different, and God's control is different. And the other counts, uh, the God send the flood to deal with human noise, pollution, overpopulation, but then they can't control it. They actually, like, start freaking out. They're like, whoa, this is, like, way bigger than we thought. And they're, like, cr- cringing um, in terror at this hu- huge flood that they created. And God... Um, in, uh, in contrast is in complete control he sends it and he decides when it's done Like he's the one that's in control of everything and third God's grace is different God's reason is different God's control is different God's grace is different in one of the stories uh, in other cultures the, the flood hero is tipped off um, by two lesser gods um, that this flood is coming and that's how he survives it. It's like, everyone's supposed to die, but these two guys are kind of like insubordinate to the boss god. And they come, They're come, they not two guys. These two lesser gods are insubordinate to the boss god. They come and say, hey, uh, there's a flood coming. You know, like, save your family. And so that's the only reason he survives. And then after the flood, the boss god comes down to survey what's happening. He's like, what? People are still alive down here? He's like surprised that anybody's alive. Uh, but in the Bible, God decides that Noah will be saved. It's not like Noah... You know, kind of sneaks his way and like survives. It's like, because of God's grace, um, that's why Noah survives. He finds grace in God's eyes, and then God gives him instructions for how to save himself and save his family and save the animals. And so God is in control both of judgment and of salvation. So justice is why the flood's coming, and grace is why Noah survives. We see God's total control over the flood in chapter 8, and when we hear that God remembered Noah. And this doesn't mean that Um, God's like unleashing the flood and suddenly is, you know, like, woohoo, just going at it, you know, like throwing all the water. And then he's like, oh, yeah. Wait, there's that Noah guy. Oh, I told him I was going to save him. It's not like he all of a sudden, like, remembers he had, like, this loss of memory. But when God remembers in scripture, it means he's about to move to loving action. Um, God remembers somebody and now uh, loving action is about to follow. He's going to take loving action. And we read God's decree to send the flood. We read that earlier. Um, And then we read the rising of the waters, that's what I read. Um, But now we're going to read God's loving action in chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. Like I said, this is just a long passage, and so I broke it up this way so that we could cover the whole thing. Um, So we're going to read uh, chapter 8, starting verse 1 through 19. And this is, the flood has happened, and the earth is flooded, and then we read in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock that are with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the, the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. The tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of forty days Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go off from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, that be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So that's the, the end. Uh, well, not the end. We're going to see a little more next week. But the flood is done. Um, Noah's been in the boat. They're, I mean, if you think about it, they were in this thing. If you add it all up, they're in the ark for like a year, 150 days of the, water, the um, water's coming. I can't remember it all, but it adds up to like a year they're hanging out um, in this boat. And the act of the flood um, takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2, when the earth was out without form and void and was covered by water. And I brought my trusty Lego table again. If you remember our first week, uh, we talked about how the earth was without form and you know, it was void. And so there was kind of like all this, you know, all the pieces were just laying out there. It wasn't formed. And then God forms it. He makes dry land. He makes the heavens. He makes the earth, the sun, the moon, and all that stuff. And then he fills it. He puts the animals. and He puts people and puts all things in it. So this is like a picture of the earth formed. That's how it is. You know, there's this little dude down here. Nick built this, by the way. So... Don't don't give me credit for the awesomeness. Thank you, Nick. Yes, thank you, Nick. Uh, oh, there's a horse back here. There's a, there's a, let's give the, we'll give the credit to God. He gave us the creative uh, ability. So here it is. There's the Earth, but then God floods the waters again. Because remember, Genesis one two told us. Let's see if I wrote it down here. No, I didn't. Um, Genesis uh, one two is saying that Earth is a form and void, and there is all these waters over the earth. And then God start, he separates the waters to make dry land, and then he puts so he makes the moon and the stars, and he makes all this stuff, and it makes, comes to form. And now God's basically undoing that, because he's saying, I'm going to flood the earth again. He's bringing all those waters back that were covering it, and he's taking all the things out that he filled it with. Here, here these guys, they're gone. This is gone. We'll topple this over. Boom. So and he's kind of bringing it back to the state where, okay, the earth is empty. Um, and it's got these waters back. But God um, is uncreating it, so not so he can leave it like that. Because He's going to recreate it because then he takes all the waters away. We just saw in this. And then as Noah, he's got all these animals. They're coming out of the ark. It's like, okay, now go and fill it again. All the animals, be fruitful, multiply. And then in next week we're going to see he tells Noah, you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so God brings it back to that uncreated state. And then he is renewing it and recreating it so he can now fill it, fill it up again so there you go, all those guys died but now but, they, but then they came out of this boat boom just one huge one huge horse that's all finished so they come out of the boat, refill it back again. so uh, the point is that he can, so he can renew it so let's return to our big question how do we escape ruin and experience renewal and we learn the answer by looking at how Noah responded. And so if you have your Bible open, um, but if not, you can just listen. Um, look at chapter 6, verse 22. I just want to show you how many times this is repeated. So chapter 6, verse 22. God gives him all of the instructions. Verse 22 says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then look at chapter 7, verse 5. Just a couple verses later. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then jump to uh, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. Then skip the last one to s- chapter 7, verse 16. It says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So Noah is a man of obedient faith. He trusts God and he does what God Tells him to do, and the big question this passage answers is: How do we escape ruin and experience renewal? And we get two answers from Noah. First, believe God's warning of ruin. Believe God's warning of ruin. The only way to escape ruin is to believe God's warning of ruin. Um, so to experience ruin and to escape ruin and experience renewal, we need to believe God's warning of ruin. God told Noah what was coming and what Noah needed to do in order to escape it. And uh, but Noah wouldn't escape ruin um, unless he did what God said. If he was just like, eh, you know, he was gonna he's gonna die with everyone else. And it's easy to think that believing God um, was a no-brainer for Noah. Like, uh, there's gonna be a flood that will drown everyone. Of course I'll build this ark and put all the animals in it and my family. Um, but it, if you think about it, even for a couple seconds, you realize how crazy it is. A flood is coming, and you have to build a huge boat, and the animals are gonna come to you and go into it. Like, that's just pretty crazy thing. Um, and so it wasn't like a no-brainer for like, oh, of course I'm going to do this thing. Noah needed to have faith. Um, and there's many things that could have deterred his obedience. For one, he looks silly. Um, his actions look crazy to those who don't believe God's warning. He's building this big boat for a flood while the sun is shining and there's no clouds in the sky. There's no sign of this huge flood, Noah. What are you doing? And people would perhaps ask, well, you really think there's going to be a judgment? Do you really think there's a God that's mad at you for how you're behaving. Um, to those who don't believe there's a flood coming, Noah just looks ridiculous building this big boat. And the way he's living looks ridiculous to people who don't believe the warning. And today, people may think the same thing. Some people think um, that this story defies reason. Really, there's a God who flooded the earth because of human evil? Ah, come on, can we really buy that? And others think it goes against God's love. Well, don't you believe God is loving? He would never punish everyone. Like that, and So people have other reasons today that we, they wouldn't believe this warning. And as follower of Jesus, uh, our world lives under a similar warning of ruin. In Jesus' first coming, he came to save. That's how Jesus puts it. I came to save, and um, when I come again, I'm coming to judge. God's given me authority to judge the earth. And Jesus says that the time of his coming isn't known to anyone except the Father, and so we must be ready. And he uses Noah and the flood as a lesson in Matthew 24. He says this, We're just going about their lives, marrying and drinking and eating, like you know, just going about normal, everyday life, unaware that God's judgment for their sin was coming. And when it came, it swept them all away. And Jesus says that everyone living today is just like people living in Noah's day. Jesus is coming back to judge the earth, and when he does, he'll bring ruin to everyone who is not trusted in him for salvation. And people may look at us as people who are following Christ and say, really, God is so petty, he keeps tabs of my behavior? Come on. You know, is he really going to judge me for the things I've done on earth? Like, God's bigger than that. Or people may say, well, I don't believe a loving God would ever do that. He's never going to punish me for the things I did I did wrong. And Jesus sends us um, to warn people of the coming judgment. And people may look at us like we're silly um, and like we're confused, but we must not let that Deter us from warning people that Jesus is coming back, and He's coming to judge for sin. He came, I'm um, showing God's love and grace and compassion in His first coming, but when He comes back, He's going to show God's justice against people who have rebelled against God their whole lives. And obeying God was costly for Noah. He looked silly to people, and he had to give up a lot. He built this enormous boat, which required time. And materials and you know devoting his family and his, his livelihood to it and you know what if this doesn't work out God what am I going to live on? you know he probably had a day job but he's building this boat so he can survive. but he believes God's warning and so he acts accordingly. His life reflects his belief. And so how do we escape ruin and experience renewal? First we believe God's warning of ruin. Second thing is we believe God's way of rescue. to escape ruin and experience renewal. We need to believe God's way of rescue. God chose the way to be rescued from ruin. And there's no other way. God's the one who chooses the means of salvation. We don't. And Noah didn't say, building a boat that can fit all the animals, man, that's too, a little too hard. I'm just going to build a smaller boat. Or maybe I'll just get up on that really high hill and the flood will come and I'll kind of be above it. No, Noah trusts God. He says, "Okay, if that's the way to escape this, okay, I'm going I'm to go your way of rescue that you've told me doesn't make his own way. And we can easily try to come up with our own ways to be rescued from the coming judgment. But it's God's way or no way. It's either death or it's life. Many people today um, are coming up with their own way of salvation. They hope that it's going to work when Jesus brings the flood of judgment. But all those methods are just like making these little cardboard boats that are just going to sink when that flood of judgment comes. It's important to see that God rescues us from something, but he also rescues us for something. Noah doesn't only escape ruin, but he gets to experience renewal. He gets to live in God's new creation. He uncreates it, and then he makes this new creation. And Noah and his family are now the new people living in the image of God. And he's a part of God's new world. In the same way Jesus rescues us from judgment, and he rescues us for citizenship in his kingdom. It's not just like, whoo-hoo, I get free of judgment, um, but it's for citizenship in his kingdom. And when he returns, Jesus says he's going to usher in a new creation. Um, this world isn't going to be thrown away. Um, God's going to recreate it, and he's going to renew it. And so followers of Jesus are rescued from God's judgment for life in God's new world. We need to recognize that God's anguish and anger towards sin is real. There will be another judgment when Jesus returns. But but know this. Know that Jesus is your lifeboat. It's not going to be a flood. But nonetheless, Jesus is your lifeboat that can save you. The only way to escape the flood of God's judgment is the lifeboat that he's provided. There's no other way. And if you trust in Jesus, you've boarded the lifeboat that God has provided. You've entered, and just like Noah, God has shut you in, Safely for safe passage into his new world. In Christ, we safely pass through God's judgment into his new creation that he's renewing. And judgment for sin is coming. But all those who trust in Jesus, for all those who trust in Jesus, he's taken that judgment for us. On the cross, Jesus drowned in God's judgment on our behalf. He was flooded with God's judgment, and he drowned and died. And the ark took the beating of the storm, and Jesus takes the beating of of God's judgment. The ark took the downpour of the rain and Jesus took the downpour of God's wrath. And the ark took the crashing of the waves and Jesus takes the crashing of the penalty for evil and sin. And once we've trusted in Jesus, we can rest in God's way of rescue. We can know this lifeboat is secure. I'm secure in Jesus. I'm safe from the flood of judgment that's coming. The problem is, even when we say that we trust in Jesus for our rescue... We still don't rest. Even though we say, Jesus has rescued me. And we still have trouble resting um, in the fact that we're in the lifeboat. Jesus is the one who's rescued us. We're still scared of God and his judgment. But if you're in Christ, you're loved and protected by God himself. There's no flood of judgment that can drown you. You are safe. You can rest. You can rest in Jesus and what he's done for you on your behalf. When we don't rest in Jesus... We're shrinking his work on the cross. It's like the cross should be this huge thing in our lives, where we're like, "Wow, that is what God, what Jesus has done for me, um, and He saved me from the coming judgment." And yet, there's ways that we can shrink the cross, and there's two ways. First, we can pretend that our sin isn't that bad. And we can pretend that our sin isn't that bad. We pretend that we're better than we really are, and we hide, just like Adam and Eve and Cain hid. We make excuses and we blame others. Well, it's your fault that I acted way. Or, oh, it's because I had a bad day that I was unloving towards you. Or, I'm not really that way. We try to convince people, like, this isn't the way I really am. It was just the circumstances or what you did that made me this way. Or, we're pretending we're better than we are. um, And and we compare ourselves to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as those people. So, we're trying to pretend, like, you know, I'm really better than I am because I can look at these other people and show that um, I'm doing things better than them. Or we can get others to focus on the good we've done instead of the bad, so that we can seem better, pretending. And all this—it's just pretending our sin isn't that bad. It's trying to say, like, you know, what, maybe I have some things in my life, but you know, it's not that bad. And we're pretending, um, and we think, well, I know I've done wrong, but we're trying to convince ourselves and God and others, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as the Bible says I am. Or second, we can perform. It's a second way we shrink. Um, the cross, and when we perform, we're minimizing God's goodness because we're saying, you know, here's the standard, um, and it's at a place where I can reach it. Like, you know, God's perfection, His goodness, His holiness—I can measure up to that. And so we're trying to perform, and we in doing that, we're saying we're not recognizing, you know, how amazing and how perfect and how holy and good God is, and we're saying, you yeah, know, I can I can get up to His standard. We bring our performance um, at being a mom or a dad or a student, or performance. At work or a performance at church, and we say, you know, look, God, I'm good enough to escape judgment. This, like, makes it so that I can do this. But both both of these are like hearing that this mountain-high flood is coming and then putting up a little wall of sandbags to stop it. Eh, you know, there's, I hear there's this flood coming. It's going to be really big. But I'm gonna just going to kind of try and manage the problem by myself. I'm going to set up these sandbags Around myself, but the flood is going to burst through those. Neither can actually rescue us from God's judgment. Neither can actually give us rest and security, because we know deep down that we need more than that. Jesus is the only lifeboat that will rescue. It's only when we know how bad sin is that we'll know how amazing. God's grace is. As long as we think that we deserve to be forgiven, as long as we think that we deserve a spot on the lifeboat, as long as we think we deserve God's love, we'll never fall on our knees um, in praise of how amazing His love and grace is. God's forgiveness and love are the opposite of what we deserve. They come out of grace. Forgiveness uh, requires grace because you're giving somebody something they don't deserve. Instead of giving them justice, making them pay you back, you're saying I forgive you. I'm releasing you from um, what you owe to me for hurting me. We don't deserve them. We deserve to be consumed by the flood of God's judgment. God gives us grace. When we look at how Noah responds to God, we need to ask whether that's how we're responding. Um, do we respond with a trusting yes? Or do we kind of take things under consideration? I hear what you're saying. I'm going to think about it and think about doing it. It's like, wow, well, Noah is just like, yes. He just did everything God commanded. When we hear God's word in the Bible, do we do what he says or we say well that kind of gave me something to think about it's like we should, when we hear God's word we should be like yes and go and do it we should be responding with obedience and trust when God tells us something we say that's the best thing for me I'm going to go do what he says and we also need to think seriously about whether we believe Jesus is coming again to judge this world if Noah didn't do what God had said he would have died with everybody else there's no reason that he wouldn't have Responding to what God says is a matter of life and death. Um, And it's a matter of eternal life and death. It's a matter of life and death um, for us. It's a matter of life and death for everyone we know, everyone you've met and everyone you will meet. Um, The way they respond to God and what he says in the Bible is a matter of life and death. Every person in your family, your neighborhood, in your workplace, every person in Woodstock... McHenry County, in Chicago, in Illinois, in the United States, and the world, every single person's response to God is a matter of life and death. Everyone who's ever existed is either on a path toward eternal condemnation or eternal life, to eternal death or eternal um, forgiveness and love. And it's all based on how we and how they respond to God's word. God's warned us that there's a judgment coming. And he said there's only one way to be saved from this judgment. It's through Jesus. Will we believe him? And if we believe him, are we going to live in light of that? Right? B- believing that there's a judgment coming and God's the one that can save us it has to change the way we live. Noah doesn't even say that Noah believed God. But we know he believed God because he obeyed God. And so, like James talks about. Faith without works is dead. He says, oh, you can try to prove that you have faith without works. He's like, but I'm going to prove that I have faith by my works, by my obedience, by the way I respond to God and live my life for Him. That shows that I believe Him. I believe what He says, and I'm going to do what He says. And so for us today, as we're uh, thinking about man, everyone we meet, um, everyone who was at the barbecue last night, um, he's either on a path towards eternal death or eternal life. And it all depends on how they respond the Jesus, because we said we need to believe on the warning of the ruin coming. We need to believe that God's rest, the way of God's rescue is through Jesus. And so we need to take seriously, man, everybody I meet. It's just like these people in Noah's day who are eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and hanging out and doing their jobs. Like No matter how good people seem, like the problem is deeper. It's inside the walls. It's not just like, oh, we need to clean up our behavior. A fresh paint job will do it. It's like there is something wrong with us, and everyone is going um, to be hit by the flood of judgment. Um, without Jesus. So we need to take that seriously and have compassion on people and, and risk people thinking we're silly by saying, like, you know what, Jesus is coming back, um, but he, you can be forgiven through what um, he's done for you. And so we need to not think, uh, be afraid of people thinking we're silly or like dismissing us and be like, I'm keeping going on with their lives because the same thing could happen to Noah as well. God knew that this world needed more than a fresh coat of paint, He knew the problem. But humanity was deeper than a surface level. So he sent the flood to bring newness. And so you notice there's like there's judgment, but there's also grace and renewal happening all throughout these dark chapters. And in bringing judgment, we see the depth of God's grace to save even some of the humans who are part of ruining the earth. And next week we'll learn about God's promise to let us live here even though nothing's changed. And we'll see that Noah wasn't an exception to this issue in the heart, we'll see next week that man Noah uh, has some issues too, um, and so it's not like okay, here's the one guy uh, who gets a pass because like he's good enough. It's like it's all grace that Noah survives as well. Let's pray, Father. Thank you uh, for this passage, telling us about the reality of your judgment for sin that you do not uh, tolerate sin and evil in your presence. Um, And you will bring justice to bear. Um, And that's a good thing that you um, don't let things slide and you don't, uh, you're not corrupt like we are wanting to just brush things under the rug, but um, you are fair, you are just. We also thank you uh, and can't even express our thanks for your grace, uh, that we can be saved from what we deserve, um, even though uh, we should perish with everybody else. So we thank you for this. Would you help us to live in light of this truth and to walk out of here changed, knowing that there's a judgment coming, but we're saved, but that other people need to be saved as well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.